0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are on the listen-only mode. During this workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at our time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome all of you today to this program, What's New in the Treatment of Oral and Head and Neck Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and that we have um, actually some of you um, interested in the topic today. It's so important, this topic. Um, Now, we have on the call today over 378 participants, and you come from all of the United States, from rural, frontier, urban, and suburban areas, and we also have international participants from Canada, Peru, Russia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, for a program that has interest not only in the United States, but globally as well. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. Now, our first speaker is Dr. Terry Day. Dr. Day is the Wendy and Keith Wellin Endowed Chair in Head and Neck Surgery, Professor and Director Division of Head and Neck Oncologic Surgery, Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs, Medical University of South Carolina, Hollings Cancer Center. And Dr. Terry Day is going to address an overview of oral and head and neck cancer in the context of COVID-19, staging and diagnosing, surgical interventions including plastic and reconstructive surgery. It gives me great pleasure now to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Day.
1: Yes, thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a a pleasure uh, to be a part of this call today. It's uh, such an important time, uh, not only uh, for cancer patients but for people worldwide, and um, I'd like to, again, thank Cancer Care, all of our uh, top panelists and the sponsors for their commitment to the patients, families, and friends affected by head and neck cancer uh, during this trying time. We will be, obviously, providing an update on head and neck cancer, but uh, during this time, I also want to extend all of our thoughts and prayers uh, for all of those battling COVID-19 uh, their families, friends, and the health care workers who are on the front line. Uh, we do realize uh, that cancer doesn't stop, and it does not take a break during this pandemic, and so why this is such an important time for us to have this teleconference. Um, it's a trying time uh, for all, but in particular cancer patients, in, in a little bit different way than the COVID-19 patients. According to the World Health Organization, Uh, There's an estimated 18 million cancer cases uh, that occurred worldwide in 2018 and uh, 9.6 million deaths. Uh, So what does that mean? It means that cancer is continuing and we have to find a way to help cancer patients and their caregivers during this time. It's really an eye-opener for many as we struggle as, as clinicians to prioritize hospital beds, ICU beds for virus patients uh, at the same time as not delaying or stopping care for cancer patients. This ethical dilemma is facing physicians, clinics, hospitals, cancer centers, and governments worldwide, as everybody realizes now. And, of course, we can't address all of this during this call. Um, One wish I did have um, is that cancer would start social distancing from all of us. Uh, But since that's not happening, uh, we've got to continue, and so I'm going to address uh, some details on head and neck cancer uh, in general, especially with some issues that we need to keep in mind during this pandemic. I would like to acknowledge one of our researchers, Eric Yoon, who participated in some of the uh, latest research on head and neck cancer during a pandemic, and I'll uh, include some of that in today's discussion. So it's crucial that um, throughout the Of the day today, we emphasize the need for head and neck cancer multidisciplinary approaches. So even though we all have other priorities on our mind right now, we can't forget that head and neck cancer patients deserve specialists in survivorship, chemotherapy and immunotherapy, radiation therapy, head and neck surgery, dental oncology, prosthodontics, speech and swallowing therapy, nursing, nutrition reconstructive surgery, radiology, pathology, endocrinology, psychology, palliative care, social work, and clinical trials, among many others. And so before I go into details about head and neck cancer, I'd like to discuss um, and more or less list some of the issues that head and neck cancer patients, unlike other cancer patients, must contend with during this unprecedented time in all of our lives and unique challenges that neck cancer patients have, as well as the people around them and the clinicians taking care of them, due to the exposure of the nose, mouth, throat, uh, sinuses, and sometimes the trachea um, because of the type and location of the cancers and the location of this virus. Okay, so I'll go through a few of the important issues that Um, everybody should keep in mind uh, despite which type of head neck cancer they have and we know that COVID-19 is highly contagious it's transmissible and disseminated especially through mucous membranes and the aerosolized particles that come from coughing or sneezing or blowing your nose um, and secretions from the mouth we know that head neck cancer um, also can be deadly and deserves treatment. And so we have to continue with treatment of neck cancer despite uh, this virus going on. It arises most commonly in the mucosal membranes. And so the diagnosis and treatment in the clinic, uh, in the operating room, in the radiation and infusion suites uh, does uh, provide a risk not only to the patients but also to the healthcare providers. So many clinicians are offering virtual visits, televisits, telehealth, telemedicine. So wherever you're being treated, if you aren't able to make an in-person visit, consider talking to your providers, your clinicians. Do they offer virtual visits? Do they offer telehealth? Can you get them on the phone to get this multidisciplinary consultation to expedite your care if you're not able to visit in person? Large academic institutions and other hospitals in hotspots or surge areas are really overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. Sometimes this is so overwhelming that it prevents access to care or hospital beds or clinics for cancer patients and all other patients. So many of these places are overwhelmed and they're preserving the supplies uh, for these virus patients. And so some patients and families are, are looking at other options near them or even traveling if they need to to get appropriate care. Uh, resource utilization is a key issue. Obviously, if people run out of masks, if they run out of gowns or gloves, then they may not be able to offer any care for any patients and making it even higher risk. So it's a, it's a delicate balance between taking good care of patients but also not, not overutilizing the resources. Another thing we contend with is the use of operating rooms, ICUs, procedural units, and many have closed in certain hospital systems. So patients, um, caregivers, clinicians can focus on the emergency room, the ICUs, and so many elective procedures, biopsies, imaging may be delayed. The limited access to uh, COVID-19 testing has really affected us as well. The swabs, the reagents, the um, Different antibody tests are evolving, and all of this is emerging and will be something that we're facing and should be up to date on uh, also to test patients sometimes before their treatment uh, and identify who has been exposed to it already. Uh, Don't forget that many people are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, and these may be carriers. And so, therefore, if you're getting chemotherapy or if you have cancer, you may be somewhat immunosuppressed and they have a higher risk to the same virus that somebody else may be asymptomatic with. The supply chain is an important uh, issue. And so when we can find that people have been exposed or have survived COVID-19, then those may not require as much utilization of some of our supplies. Um, So many patients, uh, families, hospital staff, administrators, anesthesiologists, emergency room doctors, and ICU doctors, pulmonologists are on the front lines of this. So please keep them in your thoughts and prayers as well and respect that they're going out of their way to help people. Uh, Same is true with nurses um, and uh, techs and and all of the staff that's in these areas. Uh, So we appreciate all that they're doing. Um, so those are some of the basics that I just wanted to mention related to COVID-19. You've got to keep this in mind with head and neck cancer, unlike many other cancers, because of it, it arises in these areas. To diagnose and biopsy these cancers, we have to enter the mucosal membranes many times. And um, in addition, people who have a mouth cancer or a throat cancer or a sinus cancer, uh, in addition to those who might have a uh, swelling in their airway and not be able to breathe and have a tracheotomy performed and a tube in their neck, then they not only are higher risk for exposure, but also can be higher risk for people around them. So anybody that's had a trach tube or a laryngectomy, please remember, wear a mask or a scarf over that area to protect the area and protect those around you. So now... Um Carolyn, I'm going to go through some of the basics on head and neck cancer. Um, I'd like to cover oral and head and neck cancer. As we discussed, these are mouth cancers, which is the same as oral cancer. Throat cancer and pharyngeal cancer are not the same as mouth cancer. So oral cancer and oropharyngeal cancer are two different cancers. Some people get those uh, intermixed and uh, use those terms synonymously. Also, voice box cancers or laryngeal cancers uh, rise farther down around the vocal cords and the swallowing area. So those are the other uh, cancer that we need to keep in mind. Uh, I'd like to go briefly into cancer diagnosis and staging, especially now with COVID-19. This is important because we can't start treatment without a diagnosis, and this often includes a biopsy and staging scans. So most of the time, people will have a red or white patch or a lump in their mouth uh, or a lump in the neck, and this requires a biopsy, either through the mucosal membranes or with a needle biopsy of the neck. And that's important. Sometimes it's done with an ultrasound or a CAT scan. And then once we get the biopsy, and we know the type of cancer, most commonly called squamous cell cancer, uh, then often we'll go with CAT scans, MRIs, or PET scans to determine the stage. And we should remember the staging system through the AJCC is a TNM staging. T stands for tumor, N stands for lymph nodes, M stands for metastasis or spread through the bloodstream. generally. Um, I'd like to uh, go further into this uh, a little bit more because the most common cancers that are now rising uh, in the United States and other countries is oropharyngeal cancer. And like I mentioned, oropharyngeal cancer is not the same as oral cancer. Oral cancer is typically from tobacco, while oropharyngeal cancer is typically from a virus, the HPV virus or human papillomavirus. One important change for the staging system also for mouth cancer, which is termed oral cancer, is that the depth of invasion is important in the staging system. So in a similar way to melanoma, we like to know how many millimeters deep the cancer is going through the tissues, and that can help lead us to the accurate stage. Finally, on HPV, uh, oral pharyngeal cancer, many patients are asking about the vaccine. Uh, Can I get the vaccine Uh, to prevent cancer or treat cancer. And studies are ongoing looking at that issue. Uh, The vaccine uh, for HPV is now approved through age 45. So uh, the FDA has approved it for both males and females. And we do recommend uh, HPV vaccine as early as the uh, teenage years uh, so that people can get the vaccine before this virus, um, before they're exposed to this virus, again, totally different vaccine um, that's being looked for for HPV and coronavirus, as these are uh, completely two different viruses. Um, now, nextly, I'd like to talk about surgical interventions um, and plastic and reconstructive uh, surgery. Surgery is usually an option for almost all head and neck cancers. Um, And most cancers outside the mouth or oral cavity can be treated equally well with either surgery or radiation for early-stage cancers or for advanced stage, which means stage 3 or 4. They can get either chemotherapy with radiation or they can get surgery with radiation. And so that's the importance of the multidisciplinary team I'm a surgeon, but I always ask that our patients visit with a medical oncologist and a radiation oncologist to hear about those options, regardless of whether or not they've decided they want surgery. That way, they can not only hear about the options for the initial treatment, but if the stage ends up being a 3 or 4, they may need these options after my surgery. So surgery, uh, in general, requires removal of the primary site or where the tumor started, and often the lymph nodes that drain the area where the cancer could spread. And so these are usually done um, at the same time. And if any important structure to remove, such as the throat or tongue or voice box, now we have reconstructive options to rebuild part of the tongue or the jawbone or the throat And oftentimes these are required, and they're called free tissue transfers or free flaps, where it's basically a transplant of tissue, and we call it similar tissue, because if we just take out skin and muscle uh, from the tongue or throat, we might just get skin and muscle from the leg or the arm and rebuild the tongue or throat with that. However, if we take out bone from the upper or lower jawbone, oftentimes we will rebuild it, with bones from the leg or bones from the back or bones from the forearm in order for people to not only have a good cosmetic outcome, but a good functional recovery with eating, drinking, talking, and chewing. Also, I I think related to the um, COVID-19 pandemic and some of the research that has come out of China, we want to keep in mind that some of the preliminary studies now, admit this is preliminary, Um, has shown that cancer patients' immune system may be weakened, and so they may have a higher risk to some of these viruses. So we really want people to take all the precautionary measures uh, related to this cancer. Um, Now, that would include the general strategies that we have to reduce the risk of transmission. Uh, If it's a routine checkup, hopefully this could be done by phone or telehealth, may be going to telemedicine and postponing elective procedures when possible if it's not a life threatening um, or uh, a functional quality of life altering procedure. So for us, um, we're on the front lines of cancer treatment while our colleagues are on the front lines of the virus treatment and that cancer is still our top priority. And we're treating people every day, we're diagnosing it and performing telehealth visits. And so please inquire if your local providers can do this so that your care is not delayed. So um, I just want to do the, um, some of the most important things for patients to consider um, in getting treatment for head and cancer, again, is the multidisciplinary team. Uh, when you ask if, uh, about your cancer, you want to know the location of the cancer, where it started, what caused it. Is it from tobacco or virus or something else? What is the stage and what is the cell type? So, for example, most neck cancers are squamous cells. So this is uh, something you want to ask your clinician. What's the stage? Where did it start? Has it spread? And most of these can still be determined uh, if available imaging. Biopsies are available. I also want to briefly mention, I think this will be covered in much more detail to come, that immunotherapy is now an approved treatment for certain types and stages of head and neck cancer. And so keep that in mind. Uh, finally, uh, the uh, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN, has evidence-based guidelines that are a great resource for patients, family members, caregivers, To follow is a simplified approach to patients with most types of cancers. So you can go to the website, log in, and you can kind of follow an algorithm as to what the best treatment is for each particular cancer. So all of, uh, really, my thoughts go out to everybody battling cancer, battling the virus now. Um, We hope this ends soon. In the meantime, we're going to move forward. We're going to take care of patients. And, um, Hope the best for everybody, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to participate and for all the other panelists, and thanks again to Cancer Care. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Jay. That was a wonderful, outstanding presentation, and really giving people all the details they need to know to start off this call. And um, it's so important, and also stressing the multidisciplinary team, and you're going to be hearing more from each of the different members of the team. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Day. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Mastikalis. Dr. Mastikalis is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Mastikalis will be addressing key questions for your healthcare team in making treatment decisions, including updates on clinical trials in the context of COVID-19 new chemotherapy and neurotherapy options with concurrent radiotherapy, and practical tips to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It gives me great pleasure now to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. McFicklett.
2: Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Christopher McFicklett, and uh, I can say that, as you've heard, I practice in New York City. I'm sitting in my office in my scrubs. I, I was deployed to the COVID-19 uh, patients. I'm covering them, um so uh many of us were pulled into directions that we were never expect to be pulled and do things that obviously we used to do in the past. Uh so I'm sitting here. it's a great privilege to be sitting here. And starting a bit maybe on the a little bit on the funny note, so uh, I'm in a little bit private. Yesterday, uh when I was uh in the evening talking to my son who is seven years old usually tell him this three good night stories and he said this time Dad, can you tell me one good night story and the two remaining, can you give me two facts about COVID-19? So, it's like, huh, so there's the educational aspect. So, But putting the jokes on the side. So, um, I just want to cover the, um, the clinical trials, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, uh, and the role, obviously, in the current era of COVID-19, and two challenges that we have as we, as we see patients. And one of the challenges kind of like, I mentioned brief- briefly because, obviously, as of now, as of this moment, I'm being pushed to cover the COVID-19 patients, and my partner, who also is a academic expert, covers for my patients, so the accessibility to symptoms doctors is a little bit different than usual because of the duties that we have to do. And it applies to not just medical oncologists. Uh, We also, um, we're dealing with uh, problems with access to pathologists because being being pushed to to COVID testing, etc. So many of the tests can be delayed because of this. Many of the tests or strategies that we normally would do, it's even hard to get them, and we can cover those. So those are the very unusual circumstances. Uh, we're not saying that the cancer is, has a less priority. We're still trying our best, but obviously, I would like to ask all of you to be patients because because we're doing our best to help you. And those, obviously. Um, to kind of reach out to this, uh, we're more than happy to do the television, we totally understand, and especially in New York City, obviously, it's kind of nerve-wracking to come here knowing that the incidence of COVID-19 is extremely high, and there are many patients that are getting sick, so I understand the emotional burden, kind of, on you traveling and seeing the doctors and face-to-face, and even the fact that uh, I'm coming to COVID-19 patients, obviously, there is some, you know, psychological elements. And we still can see you. And I've done televisits many times. I think it's a very good way to talk to patients. Uh, You can even have your family present during the televisit. It's really up to you. The quality of of the visual is very good. So I have to say that it's a very good platform to help, obviously, to the situation, and maybe at some point it's going to be extended even further, you know, as the COVID-19 is going to quiet down, and we're not going to be dealing with this, and maybe this is going to be a good way of synchization, and especially when the long distance obviously kind of makes the the face-to-face difficult. During my talk, I'd like to give you some metaphors to kind of help you understand why we're making certain decisions. And at COVID-19, sometimes we as doctors, we don't have answers. Uh, those studies are ongoing, uh, and obviously there are some questions that we don't have to answer, and many times we have to use our clinical judgment. And I'm going to explain exactly what I, I mean What I mean, uh, by, by saying this. So my metaphor is, and actually this is the same metaphor that I was talking to my son, um, is like when the COVID-19 kind of enters into your body, and obviously... Whatever happens is not just about the virus, it's also about the damage that the virus can do to your body. And my metaphor is sort of like if you can imagine some heading some intruders getting into your house, and you want to protect this house, and you're going to mobilize the entire family sitting in the house, everybody, I'm sorry for this, is going to get some kind of a a sure. uh, baseball bat, and anything just to protect. You have those invaders. It's a life-threatening moment. And you're going to be swinging this, and they're going to be swinging. I and mean, what's going to happen in this battle? Not only are you going to be hoarding the, the intruders, because obviously you want to eliminate them, but you're going to be damaging your house. You're going to be breaking walls. You're going to be breaking windows. You're going to be breaking pipes, mm-hmm. and maybe water is going to be spilling out. And this is what happened, you know, when the COVID-19 infection. It's not just the fact that there is a virus. But because many times, we as humans, we develop this rapid response and very formal and a very um, aggressive you know, response to this, to this threat to our bodies. So many times, not only are we killing the virus, but we're also damaging our own body. And this is what happens. So having this in mind, and this is another metaphor. If this battle is ongoing, and not only are you damaging the virus, and you're hurting the intruders, and you're hurting, you're hurting your house, you're kind of damaging it. If I'm going to do something that's going to just enhance this battle, and I said to my son, if I'm going to be playing loud music, people, they're going to be more mad and they're going to be swinging those battles. So by enhancing the immune response, and this is the metaphor, by enhancing the battle, not only you can win the virus, but you can damage your house so severely that you have to kind of damage this completely. So you have to be careful as you think about immunotherapy or any kind of intervention, not just for the cancer or any kind of intervention, but in enhancing the immune response, you have to be careful because not only you can, maybe, win the battle with the virus, but at the very, very high price that can be dangerous or can be fatal. So that's why it's very important as we think about those treatment strategies what exactly we're going to do. And the other metaphor is, and this is kind of the place to chemotherapy, If you're going to imagine the same battle, you have the intruders in the house, and I'm going to be giving my family members and protecting the house the sleeping pill, and I can always wake them up, what's going to happen? You know, the virus is going to spread. So basically what happens with chemotherapy, chemotherapy puts your immune system to sleep. It weakens it. So obviously you don't have enough power, you don't have enough weapons to fight with the virus. So you're kind of going to think, okay, so what we can do? On one hand, you have immunotherapy that's going to damage my body by enhancing the immune response. On the other end you have the chemotherapy. Yes, and those are the struggles that we as medical oncologists we have. What's the best way to treat it? Because obviously there was a price for this. And obviously there is a third strategy, maybe that's an apply to oncology, because you hear about those other medications that are being used when you are battling the COVID nineteen and we call them immunomodulators. It's something it's sort of like a drug that goes to your ear and tells you what's the best way to fight it, so to kind of to quiet you down a little bit, not make you as mad, so you're not going to kind of damage your house, you're not going to make those damages to your body, but at the same time, it's going to give you some kind of a secret information. It's sort of like a boxing match, and the trainer tell you like, listen, do this. So this is how those medications work. But obviously, it doesn't apply to immunotherapy you know, or chemotherapy. So having this in mind. The question now is about clinical trials. And we use different weapons, and some of them were mentioned. One of them was chemotherapy. And chemotherapy, obviously, we have been using this for a long, 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 long time. And many of them, they have side effects. But the the, the key information is that many of them, they're going to suppress your immune system. So they're going to kind of put your body to sleep, put your immune system to sleep. So by using them, and especially in combinations, maybe in the higher dose, obviously the risk is higher. So if we have somebody who is already getting the treatment, it's extremely, extremely important to wash your hands, wear the mask, and take any kind of precautions to make sure they're not going to catch the virus, because it can be extremely dangerous. So, I, whenever I see those patients, I always emphasize: wash your hands, put the gloves, put the mask, isolate yourself. And obviously, I understand it's difficult. What we do as medical oncologists, we try to simplify this treatment. we know that each time when you come to see us, and especially the hospital, the Iowa, there's a huge incident and there's a large number of COVID-positive patients. I understand that each time when you come in, even if you're getting the sequence, and I know that I'm helping you, I'm increasing the risk of you catching that infection. So it's trying to simplify those treatments and sometimes change it a little bit. And not to give you suboptimal treatment, not to give you worse treatment, but to to tweak it enough so we can minimize this risk and minimize the amount of treatment so we can just make sure that we're not going to catch the virus when you're getting chemotherapy. And sometimes we're obligated to do so. So maybe your doctor is, as we speak, changing your treatment. And you can be surprised and you might be asking why exactly it's done and maybe because of those reasons. The, thing, the other treatment that you use uh, is immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is very attractive because the way it works right now, if anybody has a cancer, the human body is kind of tricked. It's tricked that your body cannot see cancer as foreign, cannot see as the potential threat. It's kind of take you as your own. So basically, the immune system is not doing anything. So what we do by giving you immunotherapy, we kind of putting more soldiers or some kind of people to find the cancer. We kind of enhance it, we stimulate the immune system to search and find the cancer and fight with the cancer. So it's a very attractive way to kind of treat the cancer. It doesn't work for everybody, it's very effective. But at the same time what we like about immunotherapy it's very minimally toxic. I'm not gonna say that there is no side effect. Yes, there is some risk with this, but compared to chemotherapy, this is a fairly attractive form of treatment. So, I discussed chemotherapy in the light of um, treating head and neck We mentioned immunotherapy that is given intravenously, and obviously we stimulate the immune system, and sometimes we use both. So, Sometimes we use immunotherapy alone, sometimes we use chemotherapy alone, sometimes we have to put them together to kind of make it, make the treatment a little bit stronger. But at the same time, obviously, any time we do it, we have to ask ourselves a question if it's safe. So because clinical trials, having those two instruments that we have, which is chemotherapy and immunotherapy, and there are many clinical trials, they include immunotherapy plus immunotherapy, immunotherapy plus chemotherapy, or maybe there is a new immunotherapy agent. Because it's still in the testing phase, we don't know many times how human body will react to this immunotherapy treatment. Because it's sort of like a, when you're getting the flu vaccine. When you get the flu vaccine many times what you kind of go through, you go through those symptoms that mimic the flu. You have a little bit of the achiness, you have a little bit of the discomfort, but this is just the side effect of the vaccine and you know, you know it, because it's not a true flu. So when you have the experimental medication, you're not equipped with the system. You don't know how the human body is gonna react. So by giving you the treatment, unfortunately, we will not know if you caught the virus or this is the side effect of the treatment. And it's going to be difficult to say, and you can be, put yourself in a very difficult or risky situation because we don't have, as clinicians, even as promising as this clinical trial can be, because we don't have this information. So as of now, I have to say, because of those reasons, we, as clinicians, we decided to put clinical trials on hold. Maybe not all of them, but I would say a huge number. At the same time, the sponsors, obviously the, the companies that they have the knowledge about the drug and the companies they kind of manufacture, they say, as of now, because of the COVID-19, unfortunately, we have to stop their cool. We cannot any patient to put on the clinical trial because we can put them in a very risky situation. So I totally understand there is a challenge and the the big challenge is that obviously having access to those very promising and I understand experimental medications. So what do we do in the COVID-19 situation, I say that we modify current treatments to simplify it and to minimize the exposure. We put in clinical trials on on hold for the the reason that they just told you. But we still, obviously we still want to treat you. So for example, some of the trials maybe still can be done. So, as my uh, previous speaker said, there is was a, something called oropharyngeal cancer and it's caused by HPV. And the way it's being treated, that we give currently, regardless if you have the HPV-positive tumor, and those people, they do extremely well, and the HPV-negative tumors, that they don't do as well as the other ones. We're talking about what's called de-escalation. We're kind of hoping by giving less treatment to properly selected patients with HPV-positive oropharyngeal tumor, we say we can give you less treatment, but we cannot give you less treatment until it's going to be under the umbrella of clinical trial because it's still considered experimental. So obviously, this is one of the potential trials that can be still open. Because not only we're we not giving you any experimental medication, most of the time medication that are given in the, the escalation trials are standard medications. What we just do, what the experimental part is just the dose. We're giving you less radiation and many times less chemotherapy. By giving you a virus or making the treatment shorter, we're kind of minimizing your risk of being exposed to those additional visits and obviously uh, that potentially can put in the risk of catching the virus. But obviously, I'm not trying to push you, because some of you may be uncomfortable with the experimental part. but I would strongly consider this, because this is the kind of the situation that not only you can get very promising treatment that probably, if I have to speculate, is going to become a standard in a few years, but at the same time, you're going to minimize the risk of obviously catching any deadly or dangerous infection, such as COVID-19, so it's asked for those. And there are many variations of those uh, approaches. It can be lower dose of the radiation, and sometimes the dose is different, less visits, or, or less dose of the chemotherapy. So those are the type of trials that obviously I find that are going to be still open. So this is about COVID-19 to so kind of summarize. Telemedicine is very helpful. It's still um, a puzzle for us medical oncologists to decide which treatment can be safely given for the reasons that you just mentioned. And obviously, I would say there is a strong consideration that there is a properly selected clinical trial that they're not going to pose the higher risk of catching the virus or putting in the risk of complicating the infection and kind of making the infection more dangerous. It should be still considered. So, what is new uh, in, in, in treatment of cancer? And some of them was mentioned as a therapeutic vaccine. So, we talk about immunotherapy. So I said that we're stimulating immune system, obviously, and this is how we fight with the cancer. We talk about chemotherapy. This is sort of like a poison, a sleeping pill for the immune system, but at the same time, we're putting, trying to put the, the cancer to sleep. And something was mentioned is a vaccine. So what is the, the vaccine that was mentioned is a prophylactic vaccine. So, and I'm very glad that now we can vaccinate people up to 45 years of age. So this is very good. But the vaccine that is given as a, as a prophylactic treatment, basically what it does, it protects your body from virus entering your body. So it's sort of like a closing the doors so the virus cannot get any. But the problem is for many patients, the virus is already inside. So if you're going to imagine that the virus is inside and giving you this vaccine and we're going to close the door, it's not going to change anything. The intruder is al- al- already inside. So we have different type of vaccines. We call them therapeutic vaccines. So I mentioned to you that many times the human body is tricked and cannot recognize the fact that you have a cancer. And what the vaccine does, because the cells that they have the virus and the virus them into a cancer, they look different, but they don't look different. So much that your human body can see it, so you have to kind of give your human body kind of like a magnifying glass. You have to make your body aware, okay, there is something wrong. So there are some therapeutic vaccines, and basically what we do, we teach your body how to find and how to make this cancer visible. Because if are going to tell them, your human body, it says, if this virus is going to have the blonde hair and the blue eyes, then you're going to know what you look for. And this is, we're kind of giving the set of description to the human body how to find this cancer. So that therapeutic vaccines are many times given in combination with other immunotherapy agents or with other chemotherapy agents, but they have the recognition of the cancer. So those weapons that the human body kind of creates to fight the cancer, they can be properly delivered. And there are many clinical trials that obviously they use this strategy, and obviously it's very attractive, and I would strongly encourage you for, to look for those. And I have to say that having the telemedicine now, you may have access to some experts that maybe they're a little bit far away, but maybe they can help you navigate you for this process and help you to find their proper trial. So let's now switch a little bit of the gears and tell you what are the new updates and what are the new promising treatment that eventually can be used uh, in treatment of cancer patients. Cennation immunotherapy, so I have to say that it's approved, but it's only approved for patients that they have the metastatic disease. K-truda, can be used alone, or can be used in combination with chemotherapy um, in patients that develop, recovered metastatic cancer. In immunotherapy is not approved yet to use in any other settings. So sometimes we have patients what we call as a local disease or locally advanced disease. But many times the surgery or radiation is a key component of this treatment. And in those type of situations, immunotherapy cannot be used yet. But I have to say, there are many, cl- many clinical trials trying to incorporate immunotherapy in the treatments that obviously, uh, that we use in locally or locally advanced disease. So these are some examples. So there is a study in France that they give temporalism up with radiation and other patients are using the radiation herbitex, and we're trying to see which one is better because radiation herbitex is considered a standard. we of known the standards. So we're trying to find the answer. There is another study, it's called nrg mha 0 4 and you don't have to remember those when we're testing Dorbolumab. It's another PD-1 inhibitor or another immunotherapy agent that is given with the radiation, and the question is the same. We're trying to find out if by adding the immunotherapy to the radiation instead of giving chemotherapy that is currently used, if this is the better treatment. And those clinical trials this I just a for example, they're going to help, asked to give you the answer, but at the same time it's giving you the access to very innovative and promising treatments that not only may help you, but you may be helping others because we're going to get those answers. The question is very important because even recently, even recently, there was a study that was done because many times when we recommend chemotherapy given of the radiation, the treatment can be toxic, or so we're not going to be able to give this treatment because of the comorbidities and and kind of complications. So the question is, what we can do instead? So what they did, they took patients that were chemotherapy-ineligible, medically-ineligible, and they gave an them immunotherapy instead, combined with the radiation. And the results looked very promising, but obviously... They look just promising, but they're not strong enough yet to have the FDA approve approved this treatment, so we still have to wait, but this is another example that obviously participation in clinical trials that I understand that are closed now, but maybe in the future. I think it's a very good strategy that should be used. Something was mentioned about oral cancer. So the new treatment that now we have, because oral cancer right now is being Treated with surgery. So what we do now, most of the time, if somebody has a locally or locally advanced disease, we ask them to see the surgeon first. But sometimes we're dealing with pretty big tumors that it can be hard for surgeons to have them removed. So the question is, if there's anything that can be done, anything that can be given to shrink this tumor to make the surgery easier or maybe more successful. So there was a clinical trial when we use the use immunotherapy even prior surgery and the question is how successful it's going to be. How easier it's going to be to perform the surgery and how successful the surgery and the outcome of the patient is going to be. So as you see there's many efforts to kind of move the science forward to kind of help our patients so not only we can make them live longer make the treatment more successful, but the effort is also to make the treatment less toxic. So this is kind of the summary of what's going on and current uh, clinical trials era and obviously awards in terms of treating patients with head and neck cancer. And let's just switch to side effects. So many of those treatments that we currently use, and especially radiation or chemotherapy, they have side effects. And those side effects are such... It can cause mucositis, which is the irritation of the mucous membranes, especially in the head and neck, and make people cough and can make people uncomfortable. But obviously, challenging it's putting the caregivers at the risk because when you have somebody who's coughing the lot, and obviously, uh, if they, God forbid, they have the uh, coronavirus, they can put some uh, caregivers at the risk. So it's very important. So we many times what we use, so we use, treatments such as mouthwashes to make sure that the, um, to eliminate or maybe kind of make them easier so uh, people and they don't have uh, so much need to say this so those are the strategies so many times we use certain mouthwashes or some other interventions to kind of make it easier so this is one problem. The second problem is that people they have quite a bit of pain Uh, as they're getting the radiation. So many times we refer those patients to pain specialists, or sometimes if the pain is not as challenging, we can give you some pain medication. So I would always say whenever you're gonna be dealing with any side effects, talk to your doctor. You're not gonna make the cancer or the treatment more successful by tapping the symptoms and keeping them to yourself. I would say always talk to your doctor so we can trust them, and obviously we can kind of make this journey for the treatment of head and cancer, we can just make it easier. The other challenge is, is the difficulty swallowing. So many times we have some strategies, such as putting the feeding tube or giving painkillers to make the swallowing easier, or making sure that your nutritional needs are met, because down the line you're going to need the strength to get better, and you have to get the strength from the adequate nutritional support. So those are the main side effects that we kind of face when we treat them with the head and neck cancer patient. I want to thank everybody on this panel. I want to thank you for the participation, uh, obviously, in those discussions. But at the same time, I want to ask you for your patience. All of us, we're kind of dealing with the same problem. And we're trying our best as a household workers to give you the best treatment that we can do. And sometimes we live a bit limited, but we still will do our best. And obviously, my prayers are for all the patients who've had any cancer patients or any patient with any kind of illnesses, and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to tackle down this coronavirus so we can get back to normal life and address our cancer patients back as we used to. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, thank you so much, optimistic. That was really outstanding and really very comprehensive, and I know the request questions during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Douglas Peterson. Dr. Peterson is Professor of Oral Medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine, Chair, Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, NAY Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. Dr. Peterson is going to address guidelines for dental care before, during, and after treatment in the context of COVID-19, coping with dry mouth, speech, and swallowing rehabilitation, and how clinical trials improve treatment options. It's really now my great pleasure to turn the program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Peterson.
3: Thank you, Carolyn, very much. It's my honor, really, to be part of this such an important discussion today, and I'd like to thank my uh, two previous colleagues for the outstanding foundation that they've provided for me. And so in the next few minutes, I'd like to hit some high points of how medically necessary dental care in the management of the head and neck cancer patient can really make a difference, uh, both during the cancer treatment as well as in the years following. And I'd like to uh, echo uh, my my colleagues in as we navigate the COVID-19 challenges that are currently facing all of us, comprehensive and high quality cancer care, including the medically necessary dental management, is important and achievable by working with the cancer team. uh, it's important to realize that the dental team, because of the kinds of procedures we do in close proximity to the, to the uh, mouth and the throat and the airway, uh, we, too, are in the high-risk frontline domain. Having said this, we've got very safe clinical environments and very careful infection prevention protocols that we implement uh, when we see uh, head and neck cancer patients in this COVID planet uh, for the medically necessary dental care. So we, we are committed to the safe and effective management of the dental needs of our head and neck population. And certainly on a personal note, uh, my thoughts and prayers as well extend to uh, really uh, all of us who are in this challenge together. And so the goal really becomes to prevent or at least minimize any problems with your mouth uh, during the cancer treatment and in the years thereafter. Uh, and the big picture really becomes that high-quality supportive care, such as the mouth care that we'll be discussing over the next few minutes, very much contributes to excellent cancer care overall. That's, that's the picture, the team working together with you. Now, as we've heard from our other colleagues this afternoon, there's some very exciting and, and currently available ways to treat head and neck cancer. Some of the traditional ways with surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, uh, again, depending on the type and stage of the cancer. Uh, we're looking at the genomics of head and neck cancer now and customizing in a precision medicine way some of the treatments in that domain. We've talked a little bit about the immunotherapy options and the uh, de-intensification regimens with chemotherapy and radiation as well. So, all of these state-of-the-art treatments can go a long way to not only curing the cancer, but reducing the side effects, including side effects in the mouth. So, we're very excited about where we are and where the future is taking us. Now, having said this, uh, head and neck radiation, for example, either with or without chemotherapy, can cause temporary or sometimes permanent changes in the mouth. Including impact on the teeth, the gums, uh, the lining tissues of the mouth, the mucosa that was talked about, and the salivary glands. And given some of the given the complexity of some of these complications in the mouth, some may resolve when the cancer treatment ends. It may take uh, a few weeks after the radiation ends, for example, for the mouth sores and the mucositis that was mentioned it goes away. But it, it does go away typically. Other problems, such as dry mouth, depending on where the radiation has been given, can be lifelong for many, many years after the radiation ends. And so in this context, for specific dental management, this becomes really important. A thorough dental examination before you start your head and neck cancer treatment very much can make a difference during the upcoming cancer treatment, as well as the months and years after the treatment. So the dental team working with the rest of the cancer treatment team up front before the cancer treatment begins can make a big difference. Now, if a problem should develop during the cancer treatment or in the years after the cancer treatment that involves the teeth or the gums or the the oral or mouth mucosa or the salivary glands, we are here to help. And the sooner we detect a problem developing, the better and faster we can treat it. Now, as far as some practical tips related to the dry mouth story, and particularly in relation to the speech and swallowing, the radiation, depending, again, where it's given, if it affects the primarily what we call the major salivary glands in the head and neck, can lead to dry mouth for the rest of one's life for for many years. And in addition to causing uh, some changes, such as taste disturbances, which can have an impact on diet and nutrition, um, it can also, the dry mouth can also make it more difficult for patients to speak, swallow, and drink. And so, in that context, it becomes very important that the full cancer team, including the oncologist, the oncology nurse, the dentist, the nutritionist, the speech pathologist, just to name a few, work with you collectively to minimize the mouth's dryness and maximize your ability to eat, speak and swallow. And I'm going to defer to Ms. Beard in a few minutes related to some of the nutritional aspects in relation to the dry mouth. Now another uh, consideration is in addition to some of these changes in speaking and swallowing and the like with dry mouth, it can also increase the risk for infection in your mouth in the months and years after the radiation. And that infection, if it involves the gums or the teeth in some conditions, can lead to infection in the bone, which in turn can lead to a uh, a change in the bone that we call osteoradionecrosis. Now, this can be prevented in many cases if the patient about to begin head net radiation is seen by the dental team and medically necessary dental treatment is done before the radiation starts. If, however, the radiation uh, moves forward and there's dryness over time, If there's risk for osteoarthritis necrosis that begins to develop uh, a year, two, three years after the radiation ends, then again, the sooner the dentist can um, observe that change, the more safe and effective we can do to minimize and eliminate the problem. So again, it's not just before the radiation begins or the cancer treatment begins that the dental team plays an important role, but it's during the cancer treatment and uh, well after the cancer treatment ends. Now, just a few tips on management of the dry mouth. Uh, Some very basic approaches, such as sipping water or sugarless, that's very important, sugarless drinks uh, often, so sipping water or sugarless drinks, avoiding drinks with caffeine, such as coffee, tea, and some sodas, because they can dry the mouth further. Don't use tobacco or alcohol. These can also dry the mouth. And uh, in general, avoiding spicy or salty foods that may irritate the mouth if it's dry. And then one additional tip would be, and again, the dental team will be glad to work with you on this, um, developing a special program related to topical administration of fluoride to the teeth. The fluoride administration can protect the tooth tissues when the mouth is dry for many months and many years. And again, that's important to protect the teeth from developing infection so that we reduce the risk of potentially serious problems like osteoradionecrosis. So as I begin to um, wrap up, just a few words about the clinical trial uh, that my colleagues have touched on, some of the modeling of that. Uh, As you've already heard, depending on the the type and stage of your cancer treatment, uh, you may be offered an invitation by your oncology team to participate in a clinical research study. Uh, you don't have to participate. It's an entirely voluntary effort, uh, entirely up to you as the patient. If you're interested in hearing more about the research opportunity, provided, you'll be provided with quite a bit of uh, very helpful information, as well as how you'll be taken care of throughout the entire time of the research. And we'll focus on your safety and your privacy, as well as the value and importance of the cancer research clinical trial. Now, as I mentioned, your participation would be entirely voluntary from beginning until the end of the research study. Uh, Any questions you have in the beginning or throughout the study would be immediately addressed, and you'd be free to withdraw from the clinical study at any time for any reason. Now, having said this, If you decide to participate in a clinical trial, you will typically receive quite a bit of health professional attention. This is a good thing. Many of our patients enjoy that, uh, really extra attention as part of the research study. This does not compromise in any way your ongoing cancer treatment. It just blends in beautifully with your current state-of-the-art cancer treatment. And then very importantly... The research gift that you would be giving uh, to the oncology world would be of tremendous value to the oncology team and to future cancer patients as well. It would be a, uh, just a, uh, a priceless gift that you would be giving to oncology research. So if you are offered the opportunity to participate in a clinical study, um, I would certainly recommend that you think carefully about it. Now, we've already heard that right now, temporarily, many clinical trials are on hold. you uh, mm-hmm. may or may not be offered this opportunity, but the principles are still there. And when COVID-19 is behind us, um, we're going to get back to normal again and, and move ahead. So as I uh, wrap up now, again, the, the big picture is that high-quality supportive care, such as the mouth care that we've been discussing, very much contributes to excellent cancer care. And as, we, uh, as you move forward with your cancer treatment decisions, please ask any questions, express any concerns to any of the uh, cancer team, we are here to help. And this approach of the team before, during, and after cancer check therapy is very much designed to maximize the cure and the quality of life for you for many years to come. Thank you, Carolyn, very much for this opportunity to contribute.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. That was outstanding and as always such a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden, and Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. Tabake EDA Medical Center. And she's going to discuss nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited
4: to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential in your tolerance to treatment and your quality of life. Um, Your diet may be modified either before, during, or after your cancer treatment. Um, And this is to not only um, maybe meet any challenges that you may be facing, but also um, help with side effects and um, response to treatment. Some common side effects we've heard about a lot of them today already. Um, but some that can interfere with your with your eating are things such as a loss um, or change in your taste, of course the dry mouth, we've heard about that, um, decreased appetite, nausea, vomiting, um, a thick saliva, a sore mouth, a sore throat, um, difficulties chewing and swallowing. And um, sometimes just a poor appetite overall, just not really feeling the energy or interest to eat. So prior to treatment, um, there may be some things that you experience or appointments that you have um, that can impact your eating as well. Oftentimes patients who go under oral and head and neck cancer treatment for, um, treatment will have some dental extractions prior to beginning the treatment. And this can be kind of the first First thing folks are faced with, and um, so working with your dietitian on getting in the nutrition that you need. For a while, you may need to take some oral nutrition supplements, um, eat softer foods, and just talk with them about things that are better tolerated after that procedure. The dietitian can also provide you individual calorie and protein um, goals, as well as fluids. Fluid is very important during your treatment. Um, Dehydration is something we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, So needs can change throughout your treatment. Many patients will get different modes and modalities of treatment, some chemotherapy, some radiation, some surgery. Some get all. Um, And so as you go through these treatments, your challenges can, can change, and you may find that you do better with things that you didn't do through one treatment and struggle with others. So communicating with your health care team is so very important, and we've heard that many times today, and it is very, very true. Every patient experiences treatment a little bit differently, and timing for certain side effects um, vary between patients. So it's important that you let your team know whenever something changes. Um, The big thing with nutrition is we don't want you to lose weight. We want to help you maintain where you are. Um, We may work to help gain weight just depending on where you fall um, as you are going through your treatment or beginning your treatment. Um, Weight is one measure that we can use. Um, to assess how well you're doing with getting in your nutritional goals. Um, what we find is that patients, when they lose weight through treatment, oftentimes lose muscle mass. And I have patients tell me many times, um, oh, I have weight to lose. I'm okay. Um, I've, I've actually wanted to lose weight for a while. And what I talk with them about is um, weight loss in um A setting without going through active treatment is is something we can discuss later. However, when you're going through treatment, weight loss is experienced differently for our patients. And when I talk about muscle mass being utilized or being lost, what I mean by that is your body, if it doesn't get enough nutrition from your intake, then it will start using resources in your body for energy. And one of the easiest resources to use is muscle. Um, The problem when we lose a lot of muscle is that um, we have increased weakness. Um, It can delay your treatment. You can be at higher risk for falls. And we focus on muscles in certain parts of our body um, because we're familiar with things like in our quad and in our biceps and triceps and places like that. But muscles are all over our body, and they are so important When we are just trying to do daily activities, get up out of a chair, um, walk ourselves to the restroom, get a shower. Um, And also, muscles are part of our swallowing function and our chewing function. So, whenever we lose muscle, we lose it all over. It's not just in one place. So, we can start impacting many, many things that um, will not help you maintain that good quality of life. So... Um, there are some things that we can do as we intervene. Um, if you are struggling with tolerating food by mouth, um, there may be a discussion about placing a feeding tube. I don't want you to be afraid of this. Many patients are, are very um, unfamiliar. Maybe they haven't had a family member who's gone through a medical treatment before or they have someone who's gone through um, a medical experience and they they had a bad experience or um, just didn't quite understand everything. And it's very common to have a feeding tube when you're going through treatment for oral head and neck cancer. And the reason for this is because how we get food into our body is through our mouth. And when you are not able to do that, sometimes we need to bypass that part. and goes directly to the stomach. That's all the feeding tube is. It's just a direct access to the stomach. The benefits of having a feeding tube is that we can, um, you can still eat by mouth if you can tolerate that, so you don't have to give that up necessarily, but we can ensure that you get the nutrition that you need and the hydration that you need to hold on to that muscle mass, carry you through treatment without any delays or complications related to weight loss or malnutrition, and really get you um, through this and on the road to recovery as soon as your treatment is completed. So, um, we heard a little bit ago about medications with oral pain, um, pain in the the throat, maybe the oral area. Um, this is very common. You can have mouth sore, your mouth can be very tender and inflamed, so can your throat. It's getting. Um, We've heard it today a little bit about the soldiers being in there, and they're, they're working very hard, but there's damage along the way. And there is. There's a lot of damage when we go through this treatment. So it's important that you tell us when you're having a challenge. There are medications we can give to help cope the mouth, numb the mouth and the throat. Um, there are discussions about different mouthwashes. Now, do not go and buy a mouthwash at the grocery store. There's different. You talk with your healthcare team. We have um, products and suggestions that do not contain alcohol. Alcohol will hurt your mouth if you're having a sore mouth. So definitely talk with your team about this. Um, other things that we've heard today is avoiding um, smoking and drinking alcohol. These can make the pain much worse. So please try to um, abstain from doing these practices during this time specifically. Um, it will hurt and cause a lot of um, unnecessary pain. Hydration is also essential. Um, Dehydration has its own set of challenges, such as increasing your feeling of nausea, fatigue. It can impact the um, thick saliva, your ability to even swallow the saliva that you have. Um, And remember, fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature such as water and milk. Um, During this time, you want to avoid fluids that are acidic or spicy. So fruit and vegetable juices, please avoid those. Um, They can actually become very astringent in your mouth, very similar to how an alcohol can can react, and it will increase your pain. Most folks need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, But some treatments will increase your fluid needs, such as radiation. Um, You may end up drinking up to 15 cups of fluid a day. We just need to keep you nice and hydrated um, and make sure that you are not struggling with dehydration. Oftentimes, uh, because of the pain and some the challenges in treatment, patients will also have an increased intake of pain medication. I bring this up because constipation can be an issue when starting some of this side effect management, but do not let that impact moving forward with the treatment for pain control. The doctor can also give you something to address the constipation. Um, Again, we're just working to get you through the treatment and get you to be as um, nourished as possible um, to keep your treatment going. Um, the last topic I wanted to bring up is that you might meet with a speech language pathologist um, at one point or two points or three points during your treatment, it just depends kind of your course. But speech language pathologist is essential, especially whenever you start your recovery. They can help assess your safe swallowing skills and get helping you get those muscles back working the way they need to. Um, it can, they can also help with exercises and stretches to avoid you from um, developing any type of um, scar tissue that can cause you discomfort. Um, so please, again, stay connected with your team. In closing, there are several member, members of the healthcare team dedicated to patients, and we are here for you. Please stay in communication with us and reach out sooner rather than later. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. on will now pass along. back to Carolyn.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Birden. That was really wonderful. It was just, uh, excellent. And, of course, the healthcare team is here, really. And you see all these different members of the healthcare team really here for you. And um, so they're all here. And um, our our final speaker is Ms. Christine California, and she's going to address her free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Ms. California.
5: Thank you so much, Dr. Master. As Dr. Mester mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. As an oncology social worker, I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay up to date on new knowledge and trends in the field in order to provide the best care possible to those who use our services. We've been talking today about ways to manage your care and I'd like to speak about the importance of creating support network as part of that care and how Cancer Care can be a part of your network. Cancer Care is a leading national organization dedicated to providing free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All of our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones and supports. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of issues that cancer patients and their supports may face. Our short-term cancer-focused individual counseling and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They are offered in-person in our New York City and New Jersey area offices and over the telephone and online nationally. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker and individual counseling can offer a space to express your concerns as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones or your medical team. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. Joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and challenges. We offer several support groups, including groups open to all cancer types that are available by phone and online for patients and caregivers. If you're looking for a specific group, you can speak to a cancer care social worker for assistance in finding a group, face-to-face groups, and supports in your area. A cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Having support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network of trusted people, can helps to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having this support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to our short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide additional services, including educational workshops, reading materials, as well as limited financial support. If you're interested in learning more about our services, I encourage you to to call Cancer Care's National Hope Lines at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. There you can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore with one of our social workers the ways in which we can offer support. Our social workers can provide resources to access clinical trials, which have been mentioned in this call, um, financial assistance, and potential support local to you. We look forward to hearing from you, and thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this program today, I'll now turn our program back over to Dr. Baxter.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Cosplay. That was excellent, outstanding. And now we do have time for questions. Now, I know that we're running over a bit today, but it's worth it, I think. So, if so you can stay on the call, please do, because we have some a few questions. We're just going to take a few questions. Um, I think they're very important in terms of this. I'm good to ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and... I'm going to Ashley, um, and then we'll show it normal to take you out of for questions. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been an answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. We have some uh, online questions. I'm going to take a few of them. Um, there's one that came in. Um, where was that model located? That was the model that was mentioned by, by Dr. Day, actually, the NCCN, um, the, the National um, Comprehensive Insurance Work, and that, actually, model, um, you'll be getting, so I should just mention too, when you get the evaluation about, well, two days after today's program, that will include all of the resources that any of our um, speakers mentioned, so... The NCCN guidelines um, will be there, and your, the link to that will be available to you. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, There's quite a few of them, so I'm going to take a few of them. Um, and question for Dr. Peterson. Do you use Botox for pain management for jaw pain?
3: Thank you for that question. It typically is not used for jaw pain, we've got a very systematic, um, if you will, evidence-based pain ladder that we used uh, based on the World Health Organization, and we strive to... Uh, head off pain very early because we have found through uh, clinical research that we talked about that by starting early with a pain intervention, that can often reduce the overall amount of pain that the patient experiences, including eliminating the need for uh, opioid narcotics, which is a very important uh, avoidance that we we work hard for. So typically, uh, we do not use Botox, but we do use a very systematic approach with early intervention at the earliest indication of pain.
0: And there's another question, actually for Dr. Peterson as well, just came in. Is there a standard of care using either Epo during radiation treatment to help prevent long-term dry mouth side effects? Yeah,
3: again, thank you for that question. Uh, I didn't have time to go into the specifics of prevention there are products um, to reduce the the cellular damage in salivary glands from the radiation that's given if the salivary glands are going to be in the field. And, for example, there is a product called amethystine, which is given um, along with the radiation, and that has a cellular protective effect to salivary glands. Uh, Another approach that's used is once the radiation is finished, and if there is dry mouth, and if there's enough reserve, we would call it, in the salivary glands to produce some saliva, there's a drug called pilocarpine hydrochloride that we can give 5 mg, 10 mg. Um, it, it's helpful in stimulating the flow of saliva to reduce the dry mouth. For example, if somebody has a public speaking engagement or a dinner party, something like that, uh, the polycarpine given maybe 45 minutes before could, could help the patient to have a reduced dry mouth for the next uh, hour and a half to two hours. So there are uh, medication-based approaches to, protect cell, to minimize injury to salivary glands and to stimulate salivary glands. Uh, these are things to talk about with your cancer team.
0: Yes. Another question to you, Dr. Peterson, do you recommend taking a dental specialist instead of your regular dentist for checkups and fluoride treatment?
2: This
3: is where the, the broader team comes in. Uh, I'm based at the University of Connecticut in our head and neck cancer program, and we work as part of the professional team that we've been talking about uh, for some some time now during our, our teleconference today. What we do in turn is work with our community dental providers so that once the patient has completed the cancer treatment and, and we've worked side-by-side side with the, the patient and the rest of the cancer care team, uh, including uh, the mucositis management, the nutritional support that Diana mentioned, and so forth, then when that patient goes back to the community dentist, we work with that community dental team to help customize the dental approach long-term for the patient. And that may involve fluoride, but our dental uh, professionals are very well-educated and experienced in the use of topical fluoride there's several different products, several different ways to give it. And so we in the university, in dentistry, work with our dental colleagues in the community. And this way, the patient is back home, if you will, with the community dentist uh, in a very comfortable setting, and we're working side by side with that team. And this will
0: be our last question, and it's for um, Dr. How on um, mm-hmm. blood tests for recurrent head and neck cancer and metastasis. So as
2: of now, there is nothing that we do routinely like a blood test result. Um, So there are two, three kind of situations. Uh, We have two virally induced tumors. Uh, One of them is the nasopharyngeal cancer. The other one is the oropharyngeal cancer. And there are some tests that are not widely used uh, to detect the presence of the virus in the blood and kind of Give some information. It's not really standard of care, and there obviously there is a third situation when the cancer is a smoking-related cancer. There is no it's not viral and for those those type of cancers there is no blast test. This is for squamous or carcinoma epithelium. We don't have any more
0: markers. Well, I just want to thank our speakers. You have been amazing. Uh, this has been quite the tour de force, um, and in planning this program, the next time we're going to give it an extra, extra time because it really is a multi-discipline team, and there's just so much for you to have to hear from all of our wonderful team members. I also want to thank all of you who have asked really such great questions um, um, online about this program today, and I also want to actually um, thank all of you who have been listening. Now, I know that many of you have many questions that go far beyond the scope of today's program. And indeed, um, so of course, we always recommend that you batch your healthcare healthcare team. They're a wonderful resource for you. We also do partner with a number of organizations that are specific to oral and head and neck cancer. And we will actually, when you get your evaluation form, we'll give you those resources so that you can actually contact them as well. Um, many of you have probably are familiar with um, support for people with oral and head and neck cancer buk. They've been around a very long time. The Oral Cancer Foundation is another one. There are quite a few organizations that really specify in working with um, with people with oral and head and neck cancer. And of course, the National Cancer Institute is a wonderful resource as well. So we want you to be sure to to get to go to evidence-based really carefully researched, well respected sites for information. And of course the American Cancer Society, they all have good medical information for you. And we'll give you all that information um, in your evaluation form. So we'll get all that and all the contact information, both telephone and, and websites as well. Uh, in addition to that, um, and of course your healthcare team, you definitely then want to take any information you learned today back to treating healthcare team to see really how that best applies to you and also to use it in terms of your ongoing care with your health care team. And also for those of you who would like to pursue further psychosocial services from Cancer Care, whether it be our financial assistance programs or our counseling services or, or participating in more programs with us, or education workshops, or publications, you can simply contact Cancer Care for that. But most importantly, as we conclude today, I would not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with head and neck cancer, any type of cancer. Now we do know that it is normal for people to feel alone sometimes, however, please check away that there are so many organizations out there to support you, some of them are around the clock and also your with your team. Find out your accessibility to them. let them know when how do you contact them in the evening or weekends or during holidays. It's very important that you know that if they're available and you can call them as well if you have a particular question or concern um, that that important that you do that or when do you consider just all those questions you really need to access them for. So um, again I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This completes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.